Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. When you go to some of the local football tournaments, there's not very many people there. And the way they kind of enjoy their sports is they're, they're drumming along to a drum and, and maybe just eating a little bit of food rather than in England. You've got kind of these these big songs and raucous charts. And, and for example, in, in America, I know at the NBA, you've, you've got DJs going on and you've got big things saying root, root for the home team and all, all those kind of things. That, that doesn't really happen in Qatar. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital news and the people who produce it. Sports. We don't talk enough about sports on this podcast. There's a lot of hard work and innovation happening in sports journalism. So when Richard Parr reached out to me to be on the podcast, I jumped at the opportunity. Richard returned recently to the UK after spending six years on the sports desk at Al Jazeera English in Qatar. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. Okay. Well, first of all, what was it? You know, what, what first got you interested in sports? Well, I've always loved sport. Football's my real passion. I'm a big Brighton and Hove Albion fan. But whatever type of sport was on the TV, I'd watch it, be it rugby, cricket, baseball, you name it. But it was when I was at university in Southampton, I was a, a DJ on their university radio station called Surge. And, you know, I would just do silly kind of things on there like pranks and racing kettles and toasters, silly things like that. And it was in my final year at university, I went you know what, I actually love sport. I'd love to maybe do a more serious show around sport. And my passion for that grew from there. And it was, my university didn't really do much about media. There was no media department. But just before I was graduating, they did a media talk. And on the panel was this guy called Chris Packham. And he's a famous nature presenter in the UK. He used to do a kid's show called The Really Wild Show. And he said something which I'll never forget. And it was said, everyone wants to be on TV, but there aren't enough experts. And I really felt with all the years of watching sports and attending events that I could be one of those experts. And, and I really wanted to be a sports broadcaster. So rather than becoming an accountant or working in finance or doing some job where I'll be sat at a desk for my whole life, I decided to try and pursue sports journalism. And I applied for a program with Eurosport, which is a, a major TV sports broadcaster in, in Europe. And I was lucky enough to get onto their master's program where I did nine months in Madrid. And then I did three months work placement in Paris. And my career kind of just went on from there. So how did you end up at Al Jazeera in Qatar? I know in the intro you said I was there for six years. It was actually over two spells. It was in 2008. I was working for Sky Sports in London and... I was always wanting to do more things in the field. And they had a, a job opportunity going as a reporter in Johannesburg. And I applied for it. And I knew that at the time I didn't have the credentials or the experience, but I applied for it anyway. It's the kind of thing you do. And I, of course, got the no thank you, but we'll keep your letter on file. And I just thought that was a phrase that people use. Oh, we'll keep it on file, but they don't really. And then about six months later, I got a phone call from the, the head of sport at the time saying they were launching a sports news program twice a day, 30 minutes. And would, would I be interested in joining in Doha? I'll be honest with you, Michael. I had no idea where Doha was at the time. I had to Google it. Somewhere in Ireland, I think. That's where it is. I think it's the joke is. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I had to get the map out and then he, he discussed things and I thought about it and I was like, all right, let's give it a go. And I, I remember at the time I was um, emailing a friend of a friend who'd been working there as a director and I was asking the most ridiculous questions like, do they have running water? Is it safe? Do they have shops? Will I be able to eat? When I ended up there, of course, they've got everything you can dream of. It's They've got huge shopping malls and fantastic facilities and everything there. So I ended up working there for a year and then they cancelled that sports program because there was a, a changing of management because it was a sports department in a news channel and I lost my job due to nothing of my fault. Nine of us were were laid off. And then in the in that following year, that managing director lost his job. They reshuffled, realised sports was a priority again. And then I was re-recruited a year later, so I had a two-year gap, and rejoined in 2011 and ended up being there for five years and had a great time. So what was it that you were covering there? Just football or, or all types of sports? We covered absolutely everything. You know, the thing about working in the sports department of a news channel is you're not necessarily appealing to a big sports fan. You're kind of appealing to maybe the casual fan or maybe a news junkie who has a little bit of an interest in sport. And so it's a matter of kind of grabbing their attention with what is the biggest story. So, yes, we covered football because that's a massive part of the world. We covered cricket because that's huge in India and Pakistan and other countries such as Australia and New Zealand. We'd cover American sports, NFL, MLB, hockey and then you've got the big events like the olympics the world cup and all different kinds of sports so it was really a matter of what what brought the strongest story mm -hmm. and it's funny because I, you got me thinking about when i was a editor of a community newspaper and, and listening to the sports people talking about because they all came in you know with dreams of covering basketball or, or football or something american football or something and they ended up having to go to girls uh, field hockey or tennis or something they weren't particularly interested in, but they still had to go and figure out where the drama in it was and where the story was in it. And, and did you do you have any challenges like that? Well, when I first joined Eurosport back in 2005, I was put in the football department and they actually didn't give me very many opportunities. So I'm one of these people who likes to make the most of every opportunity. So I started speaking to other people in different departments and I ended up in the department where they just did all the other random sports. And in the end, I started doing the editing for a freestyle motocross hmm. and I had no idea what was going on. And there were moves I'd never heard of, like the knack-knack and the Superman and all kinds of things. But I actually really enjoyed it because in that process, I was learning crucial skills that I'd use later in my career, just as logging tapes and editing and, and, and learning about a different sport, which I found quite fun. Hmm. That, that's cool. So what's it like to be a sportscaster in the Middle East? It's a country which actually really loves their sport. Uh, as you may know, in 2022, they're going to host the uh, Football World Cup and they're gearing towards it. So there were lots of events out there. You've got two tennis tournaments where you get some of the best players like Rafael Nadal was there, Novak Djokovic was there, Roger Federer got to interview all of them. You'd have top football matches like, for example, um, they had a match between Juventus and Napoli, which would normally be a league match in Italy. But instead it was played in Qatar with some of the world's greatest players like Gigi Buffon and people like that. Then you'd have golf tournaments and you'd have so many different things going on. So they're really passionate about their sport. 
you know, for example, they've got BN Sports, which is like the sister channel of Al Jazeera. It's, it's one of these weird things where they're a family, but they don't really want to know each other type thing. But they've got over 16 channels and they're growing. So it, it, it's actually quite an interesting place. And, and you've got more things happening in the region over in Dubai. And, you know, just from a living point of view, I actually really enjoyed it there because it's a very safe country. You know, it's one of those places where, let, let's say I was in a bar, I, I could leave my wallet on the bar, go to the restroom, come back, and it would still be there. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it was great. The only downside, I, I think, is it's a very patient culture. You don't get things done very quickly. You know, they you always have to wait for things to get done. I was all right with that because it's a similar culture in Spain. You know, if they say three o'clock, they actually mean four o'clock. You have to just kind of get used to that process. If you're a person who needs things done there and then, then that's not going to happen. It would sometimes be a bit difficult out on shoots because very often, rather than you knowing you've got an interview lined up, you know that anything can happen, but you just have to be ready for it. And actually, it's quite a, a good way to learn. So are the uh, Qatar fans any different than, than British fans when it comes to their sports? Are they they... Or are all fans sort of universal? No, very different. Um, I was most recently in France. I went along to the Euro 2016 football tournament and went to see England fans who are very rowdy, very passionate. Qatari fans, uh, I think I think they do have a passion for their sport, but you got to remember in, in the Middle East, if there's... I think it's, I don't know the exact statistics, I don't have it on me, but if, I think there's about 2 million people in Qatar, but there's only like 12 or 20% of them are actually Qataris. Most of them are expats. So you've got a very expat audience and it all depends on the sport. So when you go to tennis and golf, again, you've got so many expats, you could be anywhere in the world. When you go to some of the local football tournaments, there's not very many people there. And the way they kind of enjoy their sports is they're, they're drumming along to a drum and, and maybe just eating a little bit of food rather than in England. You've got kind of these these big songs and raucous chants. And, and for example, in, in America, I know at the NBA, you've, you've got DJs going on and you've got big things saying root, root for the home team and all, all those kind of things. That, that doesn't really happen in Qatar. Okay. So you also do a podcast, uh, The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Why don't you tell me about that? Well, I've been thinking a while about doing my own podcast. Uh, I'm a massive wrestling fan, a WWE fan, but there was no point doing anything like that. The, the market is just far too saturated. You've got Steve Austin and Chris Jericho and all these top wrestlers on it. So you're never going to compete with that. So that was fruitless. My other passion would be football, but then you've got fantastic discussion podcasts such as Football Weekly. But I, I still really wanted to do a podcast and I, I listen to quite a lot of different ones and I really enjoy Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, Freakonomics, the kind of interviews with people who are the best in their field. And I thought, you know what, okay, we've heard from these top business leaders. Why not listen to the people who are the very best in what they do in sport. So what I try to do is I try to get people who are world or Olympic champions or maybe people who have broken world records in whatever field it is. And I, I try to get people from all different sports so we can get a cross-section of ideas. I, I want to know what they do differently for nutrition, rituals, training. Maybe they've got different sleep patterns or 
the kind of financial difficulties they've had to go through, how they manage their time, psychology, try to get all these different aspects. And hopefully that some of my listeners who might be interested in a certain sport that can help them in their sport or, or maybe just help people in their everyday lives. I know when it comes to time management, I could certainly learn from some of these top people. Yeah. And, and so, so what have you learned? And I, I think you've what, done about, what, 25, 20 or 30 or uh, so podcast episodes. You, you're speaking to these these winners and these Olympians. You know, what have you learned from them? I think it's 21. I've, I've 21. just done one with uh, with Stephen Hendry, who's a, a seven-time world champion. A lot of them are, are really keen on on their time management. That, that That's a huge part of it. I think one of the surprising aspects I found was how so many of them meditate and so many of them are thinking about what's happening. There's so many new interesting things with psychology that I, I don't even think we know about. In fact, I've got a podcast coming up soon with a guy called Richard Folds. He was a Olympic shooting champion back in 2000. And the insight he gave to me from his opponent, who was the reigning champion, and what was going through his head in doing a task which he has done millions of times and failing at it and losing the medal and coming and getting silver rather than gold. It was really, really, really interesting. And, you know, it's what I find is it's how people can push the barriers. You know, it's very easy when you try a sport and you struggle at so well, not even in a sport, in anything, when you get to a point where you struggle and you can't break through and you kind of you just give up. These people have this kind of mental fortitude where they can push further like one of the guys i interviewed a guy called gary hunt he's a cliff diver he jumps off platforms for a living from 50 15 meters which must well i think probably more 50 meters just must be frightening but he does it every day so it's quite interesting to to learn all these different things and and other parts of their life as well like for example i had shannon miller she was part of the uh, magnificent seven gymnastics team that won in 1996 but since she's been so successful as a gymnast five years ago she was diagnosed with cancer and fortunately she's a survivor she's been five years clear but what she tells me in her story is all these things she learned as a gymnast helped her get through that experience and I found that fascinating yeah I, I would imagine that the mental aspect of it would be something that would you know that sets Olympians apart I remember reading uh, in the interview with uh, Michael Phelps and he was talking about his his practice routine you know being in the pool that long every day day after day just doing laps and laps and laps and I'm just thinking you know aside from just the physical aspect of it you know you're you know what is your what does your brain do while you're doing that you know how you know I I know I, I, I go crazy I think just being that that long inside my head but uh, I think focus is such a, an important part in any sport. And I think mm. it's probably one of those things that's sort of what you're talking about that, that you can learn from people is just how to, you know, compartmentalize those emotions and, and, and focus in on what the goal is and, you know, push beyond the routine, I guess. Yeah, there, there's a lot of goal setting in this. Everyone's always got different goals. But there's a fantastic book by Matthew Syed I read called Bounce. And it, it's all about that mental aspects. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there were a few years ago, Rory McIlroy was leading the Masters golf tournament. He, he led it, I think, for three days going into the final day. And he just had a mental breakdown, not literally on air, but on the field. But 
he was doing something which he has done thousands and thousands and thousands of times and yet he just couldn't concentrate on what he was doing it and that all just comes to the pressure that all comes down to the mind game and that's what really i found is the difference between those who are the best and those who come seconds that that one percent it's so much of it from what i've learned from my guests is is that mental toughness yeah, I remember I was just watching a uh, this documentary about this baseball documentary that just came out uh, about uh, the fa- the fastball, and one of the pitchers who was he was talking about that every time he walked onto the field he was full of fear and panic, but it, but he always it was always he he always stepped onto the field and he you know ran to the mound and he threw those pitches, he, he was able to to work through and to get that to find that success and get in his groove even though that he knew every time he went out there, he was going to be, you know, frightened. So you, you've been in, you know, you've been in sports a while and, uh, you know, you, you said something a little bit before about how, you know, you're a guy who looks for opportunities, strikes, trying to make the best out of a situation. Um, there are a lot of people, you know, people coming just out of uh, J school who, who want to get into journalism. A lot of people want to get into sports. Um, you know, what, what are the, some of the tips that you might have for somebody who's, who's coming into a newsroom for the first time, about how to sort of, you know, work themselves into that culture and how to find stories and, and sort of succeed? Well, if you sit on a sports desk, crucially, have a passion for it. Because otherwise, don't do it. Do a job where you can earn more money because <laughs> you're not going to earn much money doing being a sports journalist. But if you're going to do it, be passionate about it. That, that's my number one thing is, is do it because you love it. The The main thing when people actually get to work and my main experience is talking from doing a TV broadcast. So I'll, I'll give you a, a few things I always find when people come and sit on a sports desk is overwriting. You know, you've got so many people coming out of college and being graduates and they're so used to writing these massive essays and these really clinical pieces about media and everything like that. But when I tell someone, oh, can you uh, can you just tell me what, what happened in that NFL game? And just a 30 second script, I'll leave someone to it. I'll, I'll leave them for half an hour and I'm I'll then ask them, well, oh, so how's, how's that getting on? Yeah, yeah, not bad. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, uh, the only problem is I've written two minutes worth of script. And, and that's very much the problem. You know, it really is about writing sentences that are conversational and writing sentences that are short and succinct. And, you know, you can pretty much tell a story in 20 seconds, in three sentences. You just need to have the practice and the experience of being able to sub that down and just think simply. It's funny because you you come from that culture of you've got to work hard, you've got to work hard, so you've got to impress. But all you end up doing is you end up writing so much when in fact all you want to do is write a little. It doesn't make you look lazy. It actually makes you look smart. It, it shows that you can condense all of this information. The other thing is is a lot of people don't think about the pictures. You know, I can say write me 30 seconds about this golf event and they'll put the winning shot from Henrik Stenson, for example. But actually, they haven't looked the footage of the feed and there could be an amazing shot of a crocodile coming onto the course, taking one of the balls of one of the players. And that's an amazing picture. That's what people back home who might not love golf 
want to see. And yes, you want to see Henrik Stenson win, but you then need to rejig your script and think about how you're you're putting the things together. And I would say the third most important thing is adjectives and cliches. Just because a a basket, a three-pointer is quite far out, it doesn't make it great. Just because a a shot, uh, a free kick is from outside the area, it doesn't make it amazing. Your role as a writer, as a producer, is to just give the information. And you don't necessarily have to say what's on the screen, like person X cross the ball to person Y to score. Give me more information. Don't tell the viewer exactly what they see on the screen because they can already see that. Give them this was this this player's first goal since he had been out with a, an injury which was for six months or something like that or give me this is this is his 30th goal in 30 games or try and do things like that and and cliches game of two halves under the cosh you know <laughs> don't write these things let the presenter if the presenter wants to say these things that's their choice because they're creating their own character but you don't create the character for them you just tell the viewer what's going on yeah, I, in my own experience with young writers is is very similar. One of the things that I, you know, sometimes if they have trouble with a story or something, you know, or they overwrite the story, in particular if they overwrite the story, I'll say to them, okay, well, what is it you wanted to say? And then they'll tell you like, oh, yeah, that, you know, X won this. And then you say, okay, well, just write that. You know, that's all you need to do. You know, you've identified what the most important thing is and just write that down and just write it conversationally. And, and you know, nine times out of ten, that's going to be, be the best way to do it. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of times, especially people who are coming just out of college, there's a little too much of their voice in, in their writing. Mm. And it's like, you know, they're they're interpreting stuff. And, and really, you you want the reader to hear your subject's voice and not your voice so much. So the more you can take yourself out of it and you're a facilitator for the your source telling the story, the better, I, I think. Yeah, I, I think when people first do that, it's because they've probably had dreams of being a commentator, being that person down the end of the line saying, oh, what a shot, what a goal, or all of this. Yeah. And they're just giving too much information. While when you're doing, say, a sports bulletin where it's six to eight minutes, you've just got to get the facts over as quickly as possible. So... You were mentioning before at the beginning that, you know, about how you didn't have rights to a particular story. How would you cover a story that you didn't have rights to that you like, oh, I really want to cover this. But, you know, somebody else has has the rights to it. How, how can I get in and do that? Yeah, the, the rights market can be very confusing at times. And but the, the crucial thing is you have to decide first, is it a big enough story? If it really isn't and you're just covering it because it's a slow news day and maybe try and make another story a little bit bigger, give that a little bit more gravitas. But there's different ways to use it. Al Jazeera, very often you'll see that they'll, they'll use stills from Getty and different places like AP and AFP. And, you know, sometimes you need to do it. If there's the Super Bowl and you don't have rights to, you know, you, you kind of want to see a picture of Tom Brady or something like that. But you, you need to try and think creatively. Could you just do a score graphic instead? Could you just use uh, a bit of an interview of one of the people involved and maybe put something together there? Could you use a quote graphic, maybe some different stats graphics, or or maybe get a guest who was at the match or at the event or 
just try and think of different ways of doing it because, you know, crucially, you, you need to tell the story. I, I really like it when, when you can kind of get a guest to, to give you a little bit more context of what's going on, be it someone who was used to be close to the team or, or someone who, who follows the subject very closely. So how do you, how do you pitch a story of, to report something on the field? Well, again, it's what I mentioned earlier. You, you want to try and make it interesting to the casual sports fans. Uh, of course, major events like the Olympics, the World Cup, Super Bowl, they, they look after themselves. You don't even need to kind of think about those things. And I, I've been in hundreds of, of weekly pitch meetings for both news and sport for Al Jazeera. And, you know, their their angle was always voice of the voiceless, the, the more of the human interest. So it's looking at a variety of things. It's maybe perhaps getting an amazing personal story or maybe look at some rules or a situation that's affecting a lot of people in, in a certain area. Maybe women aren't allowed to play a certain sport in a certain country or, or something like that. Also looking at maybe is technology helping or hindering a sport, maybe trying to find a, a sport which isn't popular, which people haven't really heard of before, but still being played. Like, for example, in Scandinavia, they play Viking chess, which is a bit like, I think, throwing a horseshoe around a stick. I can't remember <laughs> something like that. And then you also really have to look at whether the whole trip is financially viable. We're trying to look beyond the scores. So if I give you an example, I went to Azerbaijan a few years ago and I did three stories and I actually, the first story I found, I was on a plane, I was reading a football magazine. I was coming back from South Africa. I'd been to the African Cup of Nations, the football tournament there in Johannesburg. And I was reading this magazine and it was telling me that there was a football manager who was 21 years old, which was very strange, Swedish, in Azerbaijan. And the reason he'd got the job is because he would played a computer game. <laughs> and which is called football manager and he ended up getting the job in one of the biggest clubs in Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan's got a lot of oil money there at the moment so they had quite a good budget and he beat a very famous former French international called Jean-Pierre Papin for the job so I kind of did a feature around him and looked at their academy and, and football in Azerbaijan and you know when, when you try and do these stories you you need to kind of pitch a couple. So I then did one looking at volleyball. And I, I don't know if you know this, but women's volleyball is a massive hotbed right now in Azerbaijan. There's many foreign players from America and other Eastern European countries, and they're being paid a lot of money to be there. And so we were doing a story on that, but also how it was affecting the local players and, and whether they were not getting a chance because of all of these foreign players coming in. And then I also did one on, on wrestling. That's their amateur wrestling is the biggest sport in Azerbaijan. It's their most successful sport as far as Olympics goes. And at the time of the story, Olympics had been taken out of the list of sports for the 2020 Olympics. So I was able to do a really nice feature speaking to some of the young wrestlers who were just trying to qualify at the time for a, a junior Olympics event and they would be old enough in 2020 to compete at the Olympics and discussing how they would feel if their dream is definitely going to be taken away. So it, those type of things is, is what Al Jazeera would like and, and those are the type of things which you kind of want to think about when, when you pitch stories in the field, especially if you don't have any rights to pictures like formula one and golf and things like that do, do you have any like um strategies for 
I mean, obviously, when you're covering sports, there are a lot of people, all they want is just the scores, uh, who, who the top scorer was, and they just kind of want to move on. But, you know, part of what we do is, is, is we try to identify that human story. Do you have any tips as to how best to do that? One of the best things is actually when you're out in the field, you know, you can go through, I've gone through thousands of websites and hours of Twitter looking for stories and, and you can, you can find stories, but it, what, what I found is, is when you're actually in a place and you're meeting real people, that's when these stories kind of appear and, and, and come up and, and very often they're the ones which you can find a, a more exclusive because, you know, you might find a story on the internet which hasn't been done on TV before, but it's been done in written press before. So, you know, if you can make contacts and reach out to real people, that that's when you can get some of the best stories. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, when you get to an event, the game or whatever is, is you know, that's the reason to be there, that's the event. But they, the story is something that just sort of pops up out of nothing. I remember a long time ago when I was a freelancer and I was covering collectible card games and I went to this tournament and it was basically, I was supposed to go there to cover a tournament, you know, sit, you know, interview the winners and that sort of thing. But when they, uh, the company that was running the, the game had introduced a new set of cards, like the week before it, it there was a, there was f- faults in the logic of the cards that some of these very, very skilled players recognized, And they ended up completely overturning the uh, the tournament that everybody had come there with these these you know pre-designed strategies and suddenly were these new cards that came in and these people were just sort of tearing things up and so when I got there by the time I got there the, the tournament had been going on for a day or so and people were just livid they were like you know I traveled all the way here and and it, but it's and then that's what the story is it's not the tournament it's the the turmoil that comes out of it and it's it, it's funny how you go there with one expectation then suddenly it's something completely different and sometimes that that shows why you need to be an expert in your field and you need to know what you're talking about for example the fifa presidential election yeah which ended in an absolute farce our reporter at the time was going just to cover the election the day before then there are a whole load of arrests due to corruption allegations and that whole presidential election was under the shadow of all of these arrests and then the US opened their inquiry and their investigation and it's such a fast moving story you needed someone there and fortunately we did someone who really knew what was going on and had the right contacts in the right places to get the right people on camera and to get the right quotes that's when you you really need to be an expert and have the right contacts in your field. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was just thinking also about another uh, something I saw online a couple of weeks. I, I don't know if this is something you would, you would have heard about, but there was a big thing that that uh, in the journalism circle, circles that went out about uh, the AP, the Associated Press, was going to be using an algorithm to basically write uh, minor league baseball scores. They weren't going to, you know, have somebody there type all those up and everything. But, you know, the, it was something that was going to be generated automatically. And there was a little bit of a buzz about it. Like, oh, you know, this is a, you know, a threat to journalism, blah, 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 blah. But I thought, well, if a, if a machine can write what you're doing, then you're probably not writing something worthwhile anyway. So mm. you might as well do the automatic and then concentrate on actually maybe writing the, the human stories as opposed to just the box scores. Yeah. When you've seen as many sports events as I have, I, I'll be honest, I've become a bit of a sports snob. <laughs> so 
again, uh, as has probably come very clear on this podcast, I love football. And so I'll watch all of the top games in the Champions League. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to lower league football, which as a kid I grew up with, because right. that's, that's all Brighton ever had. I can't watch it anymore. I can't watch that kick and rush and everything like that. And there are some fantastic human interest stories in those things. But as far as A beating B, then I'm quite happy for a computer to do that. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you want to learn more about it, then send a reporter out there. And if there's something which becomes amazing and all those numbers, like one team is winning by 12 goals every week, then send a reporter, do a feature, find out why, what are they doing differently to everyone else? Right. What's the aberration? What is, who's this, this one phenom that suddenly, and by that point, the teams, you know, certainly like in the United States with like minor league baseball and major league baseball, they're pretty good about identifying somebody who's doing something really extraordinary. And then, and the press is really good about sort of picking up on that, but there's just a huge, I don't want to call it a wasteland, but there's a huge mass of it. And I agree with you. I, I used to go to minor league baseball games all the, all the time, but now that Washington DC has a, a major league baseball team, I, I don't, I don't go, go to those anymore. And it's, it's strange. I don't know why I don't because uh, I enjoy them so much. Yeah, go on. Uh, and, and local outlets very often cover these things very well, you know. They will take that interest. So a massive conglomerate like AP really doesn't need to concentrate on those things. And then that really does come down to your digging. If you want to try and find a story which no one outside of an area hasn't heard of, then you've got to go deep in the internet. You've got to try and find these these local interest stories which you think that a global audience would be interested in. So what's what's up for you next? Are you going to be uh, covering the Olympics at all, do you think? I'm hoping to get out to the Olympics. I'm hoping to try and get some interviews for the podcast. It's, it's one of the things I, I really want to do. I, I covered the 2012 Olympics with Al Jazeera. That was the first Olympics I'd done, and I, I absolutely loved it. At the start of that year, if you'd asked me, would I prefer to go to the football Euros or the Olympics? I said the Euros. By the end of that year, I absolutely loved being at the Olympics. So I plan on being on Rio. I'm planning on, on doing some freelance journalism there and some broadcasting and, and hopefully do some interviews for the podcast because I think it's an amazing thing. I am a little concerned about Zika. <laughs> I do think I need to do a little bit more reading about that. There's been quite a few top golfers that the world's yeah. top four players have all pulled out. But it's funny, they're the only ones who've pulled out. Not really any major names from many other sports well, have pulled out. So I'm wondering how much it actually has to do with Zika that they are deciding not to go. And they're they're professionals, right? So they, you know, for them, it's probably, you know, why am I going to go to do this when, when I could go to a go to a paid tournament or, or just... You know, anyway, besides, the, you know, the who knows what the risk is. Or, it, it's a shame, though, because yeah. it's going to be golf's first time in the Olympics. And, you know, there's a few people who would say, oh, you know what, they shouldn't be in it. It should be a the Olympics should be for amateurs it, or the Olympics should be for people where it's the highest pinnacle of their career. While for golf, it probably isn't. It's probably the Masters or right. or something like that or the Open. And. Unfortunately, I've done a few stories on squash. Squash are desperate to be in the Olympics. They would love to be in the Olympics. And instead, you've got a sport now, golf, where the top players don't even want to be there. And, and you just think this kind of isn't right. Yeah, I remember when they, they allowed uh, uh, professional basketball players in for the first time, the the USA players all, you know, they all went down there. Now, it's I, I think it's less of a 
a, a draw, but it, the uh, the idea that you're going to have the best basketball players in the world playing in the in the Olympics was 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 pretty pretty amazing and exciting. So let's let's say, let me ask you about covering the Olympics. What was your what was your big experience? What what did you for you was your kind of eye opening? Oh my God, this is great experience there. It was actually being in the uh, press conference after Michael Phelps had decided to retire. He, he's obviously come out of retirement now. Mm-hmm. And it was in this huge auditorium in central London. And I'll be honest, I, I don't get very intimidated by many things, but there were so many sports journalists there from all around the world. And this is a huge learning curve in, the, in this story, <laughs> by the way. And I'm, si- I'm sat there and I, I know we need to grab uh, a couple of short sound bites from Michael to put a piece together. And I'm thinking the sound bites are the most obvious ones. The almost how does it feel? What will you do next? Just those, those little bits which we can put together in a piece. And, and then something else which might be interesting. And so I'm in this auditorium. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to put my hand up because these are the most obvious things. He's obviously going to say what this is. And then because you've got so many different people from all parts of the world, they all have their own kind of angle that they want to go for. But some of them are so random. For example, I believe there was a Turkish journalist in there, and one of her questions was, so Michael, now that you've retired, will you swim the Bosporus like Mark Spitz did? And I'm thinking, <laughs> what has this got to do with anything? We, we haven't got through the basic questions here. So that was a real lesson to me, is uh, definitely put your hand up early and make sure you get your questions in, because you have no idea what other people are thinking, even when you, you think you do. Yeah, I remember when, like, you know, I mentioned the USA uh, basketball when they first got in there and somebody asked Michael Jordan, why is it when when you score a basket, you get two points instead of just one? <laughs> and he was like, he was stumped. He was like, I, because that's that's what this that you do. So it's like, it should be the same as, you know, I know. It, it well, was, that, that, that's, that's why I really like uh, Rafael Nadal. I was in a press conference with him and got to interview him afterwards and a really really nice guy but he is able to answer with real professionalism and dignity questions from either end of the scale you'll have the hardcore tennis experts in there who ask the most inane question like i've seen you slightly holding the grip of your racket by half an inch differently or what did you think about the 0.5 wind that was going across and the most inane things like that which to them is very interesting and they can write a story about it for sure and he answers that like a pro and then you've got from the other angle i think it was some uh, japanese journalists and they just quite simply asked where do you keep all of your trophies which i loved and he <laughs> gave a great answer for and that's the real difference a little bit of humility and professionalism can can go from from sports stars and and can make them these likable global icons. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, sometimes you'll see video of uh, like you know here at the NBA every you know after every game they have a press conference and it seems like you know, it's constantly the same sort of questions over and over again. But I would imagine covering that on a regular basis would be a drudge in many ways. But uh, I guess you got to do what you got to do to get your quotes, but also to try to make it interesting to your readers and in your own sanity, I guess. So, Richard, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This was great. Now, what again, what is your podcast and where can people listen to it? 
The podcast is uh, The Best in the World with Richard Parr. It's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it's on Overcast, it's on SoundCloud, it's on all those different outlets. The Best in the World with Richard Parr. It's the same name on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page there. And there's also links to it on my website, richardparr.net, and on my Twitter, at Richard underscore Parr. That's, and that's the way you win the internet, is you, you make sure you're everywhere, or nearly everywhere, because then people can find you easier. I'm doing my best. I think I've got Instagram as well, Richard underscore Par. I'll, I'll sell that in there as well. There we go. You never know where that listener is going to come from. Th- Richard, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers. Next time on It's All Journalism. Readers trust the institution. They don't necessarily know or trust the individual journalists. So, you know, you can create your own one-off website and it's wonderful and the news could be great, but that doesn't necessarily mean the readers will recognize that. In our next podcast, we talk to Michelle Carter-Verna, who recently launched NewsFunder, a crowdfunded local news platform that allows journalists to be paid directly by their readers. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.